The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, guess what? It's the last night in the book of Mark. Woo! We've been in Mark for the last seven years. Seven's the number of completion, so I'm just joking. Uh, I don't know. We've been in Mark for, what do you guys think, seven months, eight months? Something like that, which is cool. Um, Next week, we're going to be kicking off a new study in the book of Amos. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Amos is a book tucked away in the Minor Prophets. Uh, It's called the Minor Prophet because they are under 21 when they wrote it. Um, It's a joke. Uh, And that'll be really cool. It's, It's minor not because it's smaller, it's minor because, or not because it's less important, but because it's smaller. So that's going to be a cool study. Um... So definitely come out next week. I think Jeff will be kicking that off. But for tonight, we are going to finish and wrap up the book of Mark. So I'm going to pray and just ask the Lord to help me out. Father, I just, uh, tonight, God, I just come before you uh, as your servant, Lord, as, as one who loves you, uh, but more importantly, as one that you love. Uh, Father, we all come tonight with, with burdens. We come tonight with things on our mind, distractions, things that are heavy on our heart. Uh, emotions that we're struggling with, wrestling with. Father, we're, we're all coming to you with, um, with sin, with idolatry, with insecurity, with um, trying to earn your love. Father, we all are struggling with so many things, God, and we are so in need of your word to wash over us, God, for your love to be like a fresh stream into the midst of whatever it is that we're going through tonight. Lord, we need fresh manna. God, we sit before you tonight hungry, malnourished from what this world has to offer and looking for something greater. And we know that you are that thing, that your word is that thing. So tonight, Lord, would you give us appetites? Would you engage our minds, help us to think clearly, to contemplate who you are and what you've done accurately, Father, and in a way that allows us to see you greater. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so how many of you guys, just out of curiosity, are into watching alternate endings on movies? You know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you go into the special features and you scroll down and sometimes there's an option in there to watch what's called the alternate ending. It's like the producers, the directors were making the movie and they had an ending picked out, they started to film it and then somewhere along the way they're like, yeah, we don't really like this one, so we're going to make a new one. And sometimes they put it in the special features. You guys know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah? Okay, got it. Cool. Uh, How many of you guys hate certain endings to certain movies? Eh? Anybody? Okay. There's a few movies out. Come on, Pat. I know you hate certain endings. Yeah. Okay, you do. Uh, Yeah. 13 months? Is it really? That's crazy. That's almost as long as I've been here. That's as long as my heritage life. It's like dog ears, though, really. Um, okay, anyways, what was I talking about? Something shiny. Uh, alternate endings, right? Okay, what about bad endings? How many of us have seen movies to endings that are just horrible? And it's like, the movie was good, you sat through it for two and a half hours, three hours, and then in the end, everyone dies. And you're like, what in the world? You know, or, or the guy doesn't get the girl or he doesn't win the lottery or whatever. Things go badly, don't end the way that you thought they were going to, and then you just kind of walk out of the movie theater feeling bummed. Okay, we don't like those endings. 
those endings don't come up very often because people want happy endings, right? People want endings that make them walk out of the movie theater and feel pumped up and excited to go conquer life, um, happily ever after kind of things, right? That's what people like. So tonight we're going to look at the ending, or should I say the alternate ending to the book of Mark. This is I've never taught a, t- a, t- a teaching like this. I've never taught a study like this. So I get in here, right? I'm looking through the text and I'm building an outline in my head. I'm like, yeah, I could talk about this. I could talk about that. And then as I sort of keep studying, I realize that this ending is not the Bible. <laughs> you guys are looking at me like you're insane. This ending was believed, as we're going to talk about, to not actually be the real ending of Mark. This is crazy. Are you guys excited? Are you intrigued? We're going to talk about the alternate ending of the book of Mark tonight. It's going to be cool. So there's this big debate about, specifically, if you guys are in your Bibles, flip them open to Mark chapter 16. Okay, the end of the book. Last week, Jeff took us through verses 1 through 8 and left me with the alternate ending. So verses 9 through 20 are actually highly debated as to whether they are actually written by Mark or whether there was something that was added later by the early church. Super interesting. So what we're going to do tonight, just to give you guys a little bit of a roadmap, is we're going to dig into that, first of all. We're going to say, why do they believe that that's not in there? Is there a case for that? Um, Secondly, I really want to spend some time talking about how can we trust Scripture, okay? Because if we don't even know if this is in here, how do we know if the rest of it is right or true? So we're going to spend some time looking at the Scriptures and how it was brought together and how we can trust the Scriptures. Then we're going to look at the alternate ending, okay? Then we're going to look at what I believe to be the real ending, the true ending, and that'll be that. Sound good? Okay, let's get to work. So here's the debate. Here's what is up for discussion. Here's what people and scholars primarily uh, argue about, even though to this day it's probably not much of an argument anymore because almost all of them would agree that this is not really the ending of Mark, as we'll see. The debate is that verses 9 through 20 were added to the text at some point around the 3rd, the 4th century. And here's why. And four condensed reasons why. And these are condensed. Okay, we could get into this for a long time. And I'm, I'm not any kind of biblical scholar, and I'm not a seminary professor, and I don't have my doctorate. So I'm going to do my best to condense these down and talk about the reasons why they believe this is not the actual ending to Mark. Four condensed reasons. So if you're taking notes, number one. First of all, actually, before I get into that, if you guys look at your Bibles, most of you will probably have verses 9 through 20 in brackets, okay? Does anyone in here have verses 9 through 20 in brackets, okay? Most of you guys. If you have NIV, if you have ESV, if you have NASB, a lot of the newer translations, you're going to have brackets. If you're like mine, mine actually has a sentence on top of that group of scripture that says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include. Now, if you have King James in here, anybody have King James? All right, awesome. Um, King James, you're not going to see that. Okay, there's, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I understand, King James does not have the brackets around that. It's not in italics. You may find something in your footnotes, but ultimately you're not going to see that, and we'll talk about why in a minute. So that's how we kind of know. We can kind of see that the, uh, the people that put the scriptures together didn't leave us hanging on that. Okay? Here's the first reason why it's believed that it's not in the scriptures. Number one, is that verses 9 through 20 are not in the oldest manuscripts. Okay, you're saying, what are manuscripts? What does that mean, and why does that matter? Okay, it matters because in the first century, when the scriptures were written in the early church, when Paul, when Peter, when uh, when James, different people wrote some of these letters and wrote some of the gospels, there was no printers, right? Okay, so if I type up a document, I can hit save, export to PDF, 
attach it to an email, and shoot it out to anybody I want. I can upload it to the internet, and everyone in the world can have access to that nowadays, right? That's not the way that it works. You can't just hit print. You can't just send information out. If you want information to be copied, you have to literally hand copy it out, okay? This is what created, and we talked about this before, this is what created the position of scribes. Scribes were the guys that were responsible for actually writing out verbatim, word for word, books of the Bible. So let's say that in Jerusalem, in the temple, they have all of the scrolls of the Old Testament. They want to take the book of Isaiah in scroll format, and they want to transport that out to Nazareth, okay, to the synagogue in Nazareth. Well, in order to do that, they can't just hit print, copy, whatever. They have to actually handwrite that out and then send that to Nazareth, okay? So it's painstaking. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. That's what manuscripts are. Now, what we have is when we compile the scriptures, um, we take into account multiple manuscripts, copies of copies of copies that we have from dating from old all the way to new, okay? And basically, the manuscripts that are the oldest in the academic world are considered to be the most valid. Why would you think? You guys ever played the telephone game? This is the, the main argument that you'll get as Christians as to why the Bible is improved. Play the telephone game. You get in a circle. You whisper something. As it gets around the circle, it begins to change, right? Uh, ends up usually in junior high, ends up being something like booger or something weird, you know, uh, poop or something. And, and, and that's, that's, you know, in the junior high, that's the game of telephone. Well, they take that and say in the scriptures that because it was copied of a copy of a copy, that somewhere along there it got off. But here's the cool thing is that if you took a copy of a copy of a copy, but if you had all of them, you could actually trace back, or at least a large majority of them, you could actually look at all of them and trace back and see what the originals were. But the oldest ones hold the most validity, right? Because the longer they've been copied, the more chances of there being differences. So the oldest, the two oldest and most famous and most, really, most valuable manuscripts that we have, if you're taking notes, the first one is called the Cine, I'm gonna say it wrong, the Sinaiticus manuscript, okay? Now, this is the whole New Testament, okay? This was a huge find. It's extremely old. It's the whole New Testament, and it's actually written on what's called a codex. A codex is one of the first, like, bound book type of things. So it wasn't on a scroll. It was actually on a book. The second one is called the Vaticanus. Uh, the Vaticanus is the whole Bible, okay? It's extremely old. Both of these are highly valued and very much taken into account. Now, neither of these two texts have Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Interesting, right? So neither of those have that. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Now, the King James and the New King James, where I said I would come back to that, if you guys have those, the reason why it's not in brackets and the reason why it isn't separated out as possibly not being Mark's ending is because the King James Version was pulled from newer manuscripts, does that make sense? It wasn't until about the third, fourth, fifth century that this ending seemed to pop up in the manuscripts of Mark. And the older ones, it isn't there. So King James, now that doesn't mean that King James is, is wrong. King James is, is good in so many ways. Um, but King James, they didn't have as many manuscripts as we had. They didn't have as old of manuscripts as we had today when we've compiled things like the ESV and the NIV. So they didn't take those into account. Okay? And so that sort of just got put into the mix as the ending of Mark. But now that we have so many more manuscripts, people have rethought through that. Okay? I know this is like nerd stuff, but it's interesting. Okay? The second reason why people think this ending isn't really the ending of Mark is that some of the early church leaders even questioned the ending. 
okay? Um, two in specific, uh, Eusebius and Jerome, some of the early, early church fathers, would quote like big chunks of the scriptures, okay? Big chunks, and they quote almost all of Mark, but guess what they don't quote? They don't quote verses nine through 20. Interesting, okay? If it was there, if it was really Mark's actual ending, you would see them quoting it, but they don't quote it. The third reason, the transition from verse eight to nine it's kind of awkward. It's kind of clunky. It doesn't really make sense. It's talking about the women and the tomb, and then all of a sudden it just switches like it's a whole new book or chapter and talks about Jesus raising from the dead in a totally different tense. And then the fourth reason, and I think one of the biggest reasons, is that verses 9 through 20 are a completely different style of writing. It's just like someone completely different wrote it, which is what it seems to be. There's actually 18 words in these verses that aren't even anywhere else in the book of Mark. Words that Mark never really seemed to use in his writing, which is interesting. For instance, if you look down uh, at verse 19, it says, so then the Lord Jesus, Mark never used or called him the Lord Jesus ever in the book of Mark. Seems kind of funny that all of a sudden he's using the term the Lord Jesus, which would have been sort of a early church reverence that they would attack that on there. Um, Things like in the beginning of it, if you look at verse 9, it says, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom had cast out seven demons. Mark never introduces her as the one whom he had cast out seven demons. Not only that, but he already introduced her early in the book, and typically Mark wouldn't reintroduce someone like that in that sense. So there's a lot of things that just don't really match up, don't really line up, which is kind of interesting. And the most convincing for me, to be honest, is almost every respected and accredited scholar just assumes this is not the book of the ending of ending of Mark. So I figured that out, right? And I'm like, well, what do we do now? <laughs> what, what do we do with this? What, this? The question that pops in my head, and maybe this pops in your guys' head too, is so if this is not in the book of Mark, then how do we know any of this is really in here? <laughs> how do we know some of the stuff that we hold so dear as theology and as doctrines and things wasn't just added by the early church for agendas so that they could accomplish what they wanted to do? How do we know? That So I want to spend a little bit of time with you guys just going through how we know that we can trust the scriptures. And even though there are a few places that scholars debate on and, and, and look through, that really doesn't change anything in our faith. Okay, so I want to spend a little bit of time just trying to clear that up, talking about the validity of scripture. Now let me just say this, okay? There is no other document like the scriptures. There is no other, especially ancient document, no document that has ever faced the amount of scrutiny and been examined and studied and stood on such solid ground as the scriptures. I mean, it's been picked apart and picked on by just about any intellectual scholar because, first of all, because of what it claims, but not only by religious people, not only by Christians, by other religions, but even just by secular scholars, the Bible has been examined and scrutinized and has stood up for itself. Okay, we don't have to make up things um, to try to defend it. It stands up for itself. Even just the, the, the simple fact, this is a side note, but even just the simple fact of the geology. When I went to, to Israel and started to see that, man, everywhere in the Bible is there. It's a real place. For instance, when you look into the Book of Mormon, uh, the Book of Mormon talks about, you know, this civilization that lived in the Americas during the time of Jesus. It says that Jesus actually came to the Americas after, uh, you know, he, he rose from the grave and everything in Israel. And there was this this sort of modern white, go figure, uh, white group of people in the Americas, which doesn't make any sense, 
and they were at war with the people in the south, the Aztecs, who, by the way, were dark-skinned because they were cursed by God, because that makes sense, right? Um, especially when you're a racist writing a book in those times. Um, and there was this big, giant battle that took place, okay? Now, the people in the Americas, these white people that were really advanced, had all this, like, armor and swords and helmets and stuff like you'd see in medieval times. And guess what? That stuff doesn't deteriorate. So we would find it. We would dig it up. We would see it. And we never found a scrap of evidence for this civilization. They actually owned the mountain where this battlefield took place, so they refused to dig it up. Okay? That's not the Bible. <laughs> okay? Everywhere and everything in the Bible that takes place happened in a real place. You can go to Israel. You can see it. You can walk through the gates. You can walk into Jerusalem on the streets, up the steps where it took place. You can go into cities that, that are literally thousands of years old that the Bible actually talks about. But that's a side note. I think the, the thing that should give us the most comfort, the thing that should give us the most trust in the scriptures, despite even what we're look, looking at this, this morning, tonight, is just the sheer mass of the amount of manuscripts. Okay, we talked about manuscripts and what those are, they're copies of, uh, um, over and over and over again. Now, to, to give you something, and maybe you've heard this before, a lot of you guys, if you've, if you've read like Case for Christ and things like that, you've heard some of these facts, but they're interesting. Um, just to give you kind of an example of, of, of how many manuscripts we have, the Bible is the number one um, most, I don't know what you call it, accredited ancient document that we have. We have the most manuscripts of the Bible for sure. Number two is Homer's Iliad, okay? You guys ever had to read that in school? I don't think I did, but you guys ever had to read that in school? Okay, um, Homer's Iliad, is, it's, it's held like super high in the academic world because there's quite a few manuscripts of it, and it's an old document. So to, be, to be precise, there's 643 copies of Homer's Iliad, okay, 643. Um, supposedly it took place, the story took place, um, see if I can find it, in the 8th century BC, okay, so 800 years before Christ, it took place, and it wasn't written down until 13th century AD. Okay, first of all, that's a giant gap. Happened, wrote it down, big gap. 643 copies. Now, the Bible has, get this, 25 thousand copies, okay? 25,000 copies, manuscripts, 643 doesn't really seem that impressive anymore. And that 643 is number two, okay? So the Bible has so many copies, so many manuscripts that we really can look back and see what the scriptures originally said. We really can look back. Now, talking about how old they are too, I talked about how big that gap is between uh, when... uh, Homer's Iliad was written and when it was actually, when it actually happened, we're talking like between the first manuscripts that we have in the Bible and when some of that stuff happened, we're talking 50 years tops. We have manuscripts from within 50 years of the early church and even 10 years from when John the Apostle died, we have manuscripts after that. So that's incredible. And by the way, that's impressive. That's amazing that we have those, not only because of decay and things and because things get lost and things get ruined, but remember that Christianity was illegal for the first 300 years, all the way into the fourth century, we literally see Christianity was illegal, and so it would have been extremely hard to have documents and to have copies and to keep things like that. Um, so it's amazing that we even have those. That's why you see like an explosion of manuscripts around the fourth century, because when Christianity became legal, they begin to copy way more amounts of them. So anyways, interesting. So what about the variances, okay? Because what we're looking at today in Mark in our alternate ending is sort of a variance. Some manuscripts have it, some manuscripts don't, okay? So how do we know there's not more variances in the scriptures? So there's 1% 
Out of 100%, there's 1% variance between the 25,000 manuscripts that we have. There's 1% variance. That's pretty good. And also considering that the majority of that variance is punctuation, is spelling, it's things of that type of nature, stuff that doesn't change in any way what it actually reads. Just the way that they spelled things, the way that they punctuated things. You can imagine that. There's just a few small chunks, like the one we're looking at, that are different in different texts that we have to look at and we have to figure out. But the good news is, is that none of them change our theology. None of them have anything to do with our core doctrines. None of them are challenging the Trinity or um, substitutionary atonement or election or God's sovereignty. Any of these things that we hold so dear, none of those challenge any of those theologies, none of those doctrines. They're all things that if you took them out of the Bible, it wouldn't really affect what we believe. It wouldn't affect who Jesus is. Another one, if you guys want to study, and please do study this on your own. Um, another one is actually John chapter 8, when Jesus uh, draws in the sand with the woman and, and caught in adultery. It's actually believed that that was not from the original um, book of John either. So you can study that. If you pull it out, it actually reads way more smooth. So, but does that change our theology in any way? No, it doesn't. So, and the other good thing, just to close this part up, the other good thing is that Christianity and biblical scholars and the people that are in charge of putting our Bibles together are not trying to hide anything. They're not trying to sweep anything in the rug. My Bible pretty clearly says that this is not in the early manuscripts. No one's trying to hide this or, or, or make excuses for the Bible or anything like that. If you YouTube this, you'll find all kinds of like um, Muslim Christian debates where the, the Muslims take like a, a three minute click out of, clip out of the debate and say, they admitted it, that their scriptures have things that weren't written originally. It's like, we're not hiding anything. It's right there. I mean, it's, it's, it's in the scripture. It's obvious. We're not trying to sweep that under the rug. Um, the reality is this is a 2,000-year-old document, and we have really good evidence to say that this is what they actually wrote, but there's going to be some things we have to figure out. That's just the reality of it. So anyway, so say, having said that, what do we do with this alternate ending? <laughs> what do we do with it? I personally, and you guys can study it, please study this on your own, okay? I personally don't believe this was Mark's real ending. I really don't. So what do we do with it? I think two things. Two things probably happened, and, and two things probably explain why this is here. Some people believe that this ending was added because the original ending of Mark got lost, Okay, remember I talked about the Codex, one of the oldest texts is actually sort of a book, so it's possible the page could have fallen out or something like that. So some people believe that, that this ending of Mark, that was probably some, somewhat similar to Matthew, somehow got removed, got taken out, fell out, something like that. So the early church took it upon themselves to try to write something similar or close. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, but the second argument of what could have happened or how this alternate ending could have ended up here is that some of the earlier Christians were sort of dissatisfied with the ending, you know? Like, when I talked about, like, you watch that movie and you're like, this ending stinks, so maybe we'll just <laughs> make another one. Um, it's it kind of seems like what they did to me. Um, but here's the good news about it, is that almost all of it, and I, I say almost, and I'll talk about why, almost all of it is just quoting other Gospels, and that's the good news about it. So if you've you know, made Bible studies about this or one of these, one of your life verses in here, that's okay because most of it is literally just pulled straight from other gospels. So it's really not a big deal. But I think we should approach it carefully and cautiously and I'll talk, I'll talk about why. Um, I think we should approach it in a way that um, it's helpful and that it's a, a writing of the early church fathers and also the parts that are about scripture are scripture. 
You know, I mean, they're literally quotes out of Mark, out of, or not Mark, out of John, out of Matthew. So that stuff's really good. So let's read it. You guys want to read it? We'll kind of get into it a little bit, and then, and then we'll go from there. So verse 9 says this. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover." So then, the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. They went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked, and with them, and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So, there it is, the alternate ending. Interesting, right? So, four things I like about this ending. Please be quick. Four things I like about this ending. First of all, I like that this ending brings attention, first of all, to Mary. And we see that. We see that in John chapter 20. Okay, this story unpacks and unfolds a little bit more. These are just kind of quick bullet points. He appeared to Mary, um, and then he appeared on the road to Emmaus, and so on and so forth. You can get the whole story in John 20. And here's how the story goes. I love it. Okay, Jesus comes to the tomb, and Mary's there. Now, now the disciples are frustrated. They're scared. They don't know what to do. They all go home. It says they return to their houses in John 20, and Mary is at the tomb there still by herself weeping. And why is Mary still there? Mary doesn't really have anything to go back to. That's why I love that, you know? She, she, she's like, Jesus was everything for me. He was all that I had. And, and, and so I'm going to the tomb because I don't know where else to go. I don't know what else I have. So this is where Jesus encounters Mary. And I love that he finds her first because technically, according to the kingdom of man, that's kind of weird, Right? You would go to the most important person, which would seemingly, knowing history, be like Peter. Right, Peter ended up being the first pope. Right, Peter ended up being um, the, the most important, the leader of the early church. So you would think Jesus would first appear to Peter, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do any of the disciples. He goes to what would seemingly be the least important, who is Mary. He appears to Mary first. Why? I think it's because Mary had awesome faith. <laughs> Mary had awesome faith. She was the least of these, but he appeared to her, and she's there, she's weeping, and I love this, in John chapter 20, um, she's talking to Jesus, she doesn't know who he is, she thinks he's the gardener, and he's like, why are you crying, what's going on, and she's telling him what's going on, and, and then he says this, John twenty sixteen. he says, Jesus said to her, Mary, now, I, 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 I highlighted that in John chapter 20, Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, it was when did she know it was Jesus? When did she know? Not rhetorical. When, she, when did she know it was Jesus? When, when she heard his voice? When, when specifically when he said her name. Isn't that cool? Her shepherd 
right? My sheep hear my voice, and they know me. And I just imagine, I can just imagine Jesus' voice being so endearing. (laughs) Mary, it's me, it's the Lord, it's your king. And she turns around and instantly knows. I love that. I love that. That's one of my favorite things. Another thing I love about Mark's alternate ending, um, or not Mark's alternate ending, is it talks about the road to Emmaus. It's a cool story, right? After the resurrection, a couple of the disciples are walking the seven-mile path to Jerusalem, and and, uh, Jesus, um, they don't know who he is. He makes sure that they can't tell who he is, and and he begins to walk with them, and and they're discussing the things that had happened in Jerusalem with Jesus being crucified. And he's like, what are you guys talking about? You know, playing dumb. And, and they're like, uh, do you not know? Like, have you not been around? Like, do you know what's going on? And, and, and they, they tell him what's going on. And Jesus says, begins to reason with them from the scriptures, from, from Moses and from the law and all through the prophets and talking about how Christ, the Messiah, had, had to suffer and why he had to suffer. And you can just imagine, like, like the best sermon ever, you know, just while you're having a walk into Jerusalem. And they say, you gotta come have dinner with us. And he comes and have dinner and he breaks bread just like at the Last Supper. He breaks bread with them. And as soon as he breaks bread, they know. It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. Cool picture of communion there, right? Um, but then he disappears. He's gone. I love that story. Cool story. I love that Mark puts that in the alternate inning. Thirdly, I love that we see, uh, we'll see if you guys know what it's called. Verse 15, and he said to them, go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. What is that called? Great Commission. I love that they put the Great Commission in there. Okay, because we see that. We see the Great Commission actually in the book of Matthew. Um, that was the, 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 the thing that we hold on to as the church. This is what we're to do, to go into the world and to make disciples and to preach the gospel. And then there's this other thing that's in here that I don't really like, <laughs> okay? And, 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 and it's the only thing in here that's not quoting other gospels. Can anybody guess what it is? Can anybody guess the verse, the two verses that are side by side that are not in the original? What is it? 17 and 18, right? Listen to this. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but just so you know, just so you know, if you believe... Okay, if you believe, then you will pick up snakes and you will drink poison and you will cast out demons and you will speak in tongues. Okay, that's what it's saying. Listen, and these signs will accompany those who believe. Okay, so if you believe, you're going to do these things. Okay, so if anyone in here hasn't played with a snake that's poisonous, I just want you to know you probably don't believe in God. This is what this is saying, right? In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, I imagine that whoever wrote this alternate ending was probably looking at the book of Acts and said, oh, cool, Paul got bit by snakes, drank poison, Uh, people, demons were cast out, Pentecost, people spoke in tongues, all these different languages. So why don't we just kind of write this into the alternate ending that whoever believes these things are gonna happen. Okay, but the problem is, is, if that really is added, that sort of, that's kind of hurts <laughs> a little bit. And, and, and you wonder why we have guys in Kentucky that are playing with poisonous snakes. I'm not kidding you, okay? Anybody see, know what I'm talking about? There's, there's a news story you can watch on YouTube about these guys. There's, there's, there's like 100 plus churches down in the south of Pentecostal guys that they actually keep rattlesnakes and poisonous snakes in their church and they pull them out during services, they get in these like demonic looking trances and they, they, they play with these snakes and they get bit all the time. In the last two years, at one church, five people have died. Isn't that crazy? Five people have died, guess what? Because they didn't have enough faith. 
because they didn't have enough faith, because they didn't believe God. And they actually call 911. This is their policy at the church. They call 911. 911 paramedics come, and they come so that, the, the pastor of the church calls them so that they can watch their congregation refuse help. And then most of them die. I don't know if you guys heard this story, but one of the pastors just recently died from a snake. And it's this big controversy because legally uh, the cops, you know, and, and, and the law thinks that, well, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. It's dangerous. And, and they think, well, it's religious freedom and so on and so forth. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And I think it's really funny, not really funny, but I think it's interesting that the one thing in here that whoever I believe wrote this was trying to add in that wasn't quoting scripture is the one thing that people are dying from. <laughs> That's just ridiculous. This is what happens when people try to write their own scriptures. This is what happens when people try to insert their own truth. It doesn't work, okay? It doesn't work. So I just think that's kind of interesting. Now, having said that, I want to talk about, in closing, why I love what I believe to be the real ending, okay? What I believe to be the actual ending, the way that Mark intended it to be, the way that the Holy Spirit had intended it to be before we get to our brackets and I tell us, and that's verse 8. Look, let's take a look at it. Verse 8. They went out. Okay, the women just, they went to the tomb to anoint. Let me give you a little backstory. They, they went to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body on the way they realized, oh man, how are we going to get the stone out of the way? <laughs> because he's in a tomb, right? It says they realize it. They get there. The stone's been lifted and moved. So they peek in, and there's a man in there, a young man in a white robe, an angel. Okay? And, and, and he says, he's not here. He's resurrected. Go tell the disciples, okay? That's what happens. And then verse 8, the ending of Mark. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Did you all catch that? What a good ending. Let's read it again. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. (laughs) That's like, uh, to use a Lord of the Rings analogy, I mean, Frodo and Sam are going up Mordor, right? They're going, and the lava comes, and that's it. <laughs> no, you know, Sam throwing Frodo over his back and climbing up, and then Gollum attacking him, and yeah, I love this movie. Um, none of that, you know, just not the end, that's it, sorry, no more. That's what it seems like. And, and, and to be honest, you can see why some of the early church writers would be like, we got to fix this. This is a bad ending. Mark did not know what he was doing. Something either must have fell out or something. This is a horrible ending. we got to make up our own. we got to change our own. I think it's a huge mistake. I love this ending. I think it's awesome, okay? I'm going to explain to you why. First of all, it's totally Mark. When you teach a book for, how many was it, 13 months? When you teach a book for 13 months, you kind of get to know the writer a little bit. And this is so Mark. Guess what? When Mark writes his gospel, he doesn't do like Matthew and Luke did, okay? He doesn't jump into like the, the virgin birth and the Christmas story and, and Zechariah and the temple and, and, and how John the Baptist was born and all that stuff. He doesn't get into any of that. He just jumps right into the ministry of Jesus. Forget all the backstory. Forget the genealogies. Just get right to it. Get to the point. Let's talk about Jesus. Talk about how awesome he is. And then he just kind of like, if you look at his stories, he leaves a lot of things out that are, that are in the other gospels, but he, just, he doesn't care. Mark's just like, let's get to the point. I have a point to make. I have somewhere that I'm going with this. And then we get to the end, and he leaves out all the stuff about um, what happens after. He just ends it right there. They were afraid. They were scared. They left, and they didn't tell anybody. <laughs> That's so Mark. Like, that's just his style. You know, he's like, to the point guy, 
None of this frills and extra stuff. No, he's, he does it, and I think he does it on purpose because I think he's trying to make a point, not just in his last verse, but in the whole book. So for the next five minutes, okay, maybe seven minutes, seven and a half, for the next seven and a half minutes, can we just do a recap of the book of Mark? And I want you to look for what is it that Mark is trying to say? What is the theme that Mark is trying to portray in this book? And how does the ending actually make it more clear? Now, first of all, the last word of the book is afraid. Okay? The last word of the book is afraid. That's a Greek word called phobeo. And that's where we get the word phobia. Okay? I'm not pretending to know Greek. I just, that's what it is. Um, phobia. Fear, it also can mean and be used a lot of times as amazement, a sense of awe, okay? So fear, awe, amazement, okay, keep that in mind. So if you got your Bibles and if you feel like flipping around a bunch, if you just want to listen, that's fine. But if you have your Bibles and you want to, Mark chapter 1, verse 22, and we're just going to go through and look at some things and do, what's that called, a movie montage at the end of the movie when they go back and see all the cool, yeah, we're going to do that. I don't think that's what it's called. Anyways. Mark chapter 1, verse 22. So, beginning of the book, beginning of the gospel, Jesus goes into the synagogue on Saturday, the Sabbath, and he begins to preach in the synagogue. And look at verse 22. It says, they were, what? Astonished at his teaching. They can't believe the way that this rabbi is teaching. They're blown away. They're astonished by his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes, okay? He taught them as someone that was speaking from his own authority rather than just quoting some other scribe. A couple verses down, verse 27. This is where Jesus uh, casts out a demon. It says in verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So again, they're amazed, they can't believe that this rabbi just cast a demon out of someone. What kind of power is that? Then go to chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12, Jesus actually goes up to someone that cannot walk, that's completely paralyzed, and heals their, that paralytic. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, the paralytic, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed. And glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. They're blown away. I can't believe that he just healed a paralytic. This guy couldn't even walk, and now he's running around with his bed, okay? This is crazy. Then, one of my favorites, chapter 4, verse 51. The the, uh, disciples get in the boat, the fishing boat with Jesus, and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, which is really more like a lake, but it's big enough, okay? And there's all these crazy storms that always happen on the Sea of Galilee. This crazy storm comes. Giant waves thunder, lightning, you can imagine it. Jesus is sleeping in the bottom of the boat, just taking a snooze, okay? These guys are up here freaking out. This is the end. We're over. We're done. We're going to sink. We're going to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Here it goes. And what's going on with Jesus? He's just sleeping in the bottom of the boat. Jesus comes up. What does he do? Verse 51, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus literally gets up and speaks, And creation obeys him, right? Creation obeys him, and they were filled with fear, with awe, with wonder. Who is this that just spoke and creation obeyed him? Then chapter 5, verse 15, 
Jesus encounters the uh, legion of demons, casts them out, sends them into a group of pigs. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Not of legion, because he's cast out. Who are they afraid of? Jesus. Who is this guy just cast out a legion of demons? Who is this guy? How is he doing that? Remember, they they asked him to leave because they they were freaked out, more freaked out by him than they were by uh, the legion of demons. Then chapter 5, verse 33, Jesus is walking through a crowd of people, and this is a comical moment, and and, and people all around him pressing in, and all of a sudden he says, hey, someone just touched me, (laughs) you know? Disciples are like, everyone's touching you. It's it's like a, you know, mosh pit or something. You know, everyone's touching you. And he says, no. He recognizes, he knows that someone touched his garment, and in that moment, some power, some, 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 some healing left his body. And if you remember, there's a, a woman with an issue of blood that, that, that risked her life to go up and just to touch the hem of his garment, and she was healed in that moment. And verse 33 says, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, knowing that she was healed, that, that just touching the hem of this guy's garment healed her, in fear and trembling, fell 